I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Suryadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. So if we recognize or realize or see all beings as essentially Buddhas, why would we even be moved to help if everything is perfect as it is? Then what? Of course, that's just the absolute or ultimate truth or side of things, the ultimate bodhicitta. And we need to leave room for that and find some peace so we can just be to balance all our doings. But still, when we see how beings, including ourselves, how all beings are suffering at the hands of various things, karma and kalesha, conditioning, nature and nurture, obscurations, illusion, delusion, confusion, whatever you want to call it, naturally, we feel it, we feel what they feel, we feel moved to help or to wisen up, to be a light rather than a blight in this world. So natural compassion, natural compassion, action, benevolence, giving, helping, and being there for others. Responsiveness naturally surges forth. Today's subject is integrating Dharma with daily life. We've studied, we've practiced, we've talked about Dzogchen, and now comes the action. In the Mahayana, the image is always of the Bodhisattva, whose two wings of prajna, transcendental wisdom, gnosis, and compassion, Skillful means compassion, wings in the space of Buddhahood, or wings to Buddhahood. Or if you look at it, in the Vajrayana, the images of non-duality, of inseparability, of tantra, wharf and woof, pure perception, seeing it as it is. In Dzogchen, the images of the crystal, or the sky-like nature of mind, like a crystal. Now we're talking about action. What does the crystal do that makes it so special? Why is a crystal more special than glass? 
then window, then mirror. So the crystal has some kind of power, the power to refract. If there are rays, if there's sunlight, if there are rays, it radiates. It can radiate. Rigpa has this power. But what is it doing itself? Is it hyperactive? Is it getting tired? Is it bored if there's nothing, no rays, if there's nothing happening? So this is the image of the ultimate bodhicitta. If, there is, if there's wind, there's waves in the ocean of awareness. Responsiveness. The ocean doesn't go looking for work. It doesn't need to wave the same way every time, like do-gooders with their cookie cutter trying to stamp out people like them everywhere, convert the heathens, make little me's or whatever, fix things according to their own limited view, but only as needed, which requires the wisdom of discrimination to see what really is going on. So that skillful action and helpfulness can occur not just make more trouble, stirring up the dust, enabling, you know, giving sugar to the diabetics because they want some, giving wine to the winos because they ask. No. So the crystal remains unmoved, although if there's light rays, it can reflect all the rainbow colors of the six realms of being, of all possibilities. Similarly, the crystal-like or diamond-like rikpa or our true nature nature of mind, if you insist, although mind is so limited in our thinking and language, the pure, uncorruptible inner spirit or clear light remains unmoved. Just like a mirror, changing the metaphor, the mirror-like awareness in the Vajrayana reflects anything, but if nothing comes in front of it, it doesn't go looking for reflections or get bored, nor does it get overloaded and overwhelmed by many things. The mirror-like awareness, one of the five wisdoms of five awarenesses of the five Buddha families in the Vajrayana, Diamond Path, Tantric teachings. So Chen's much more simple, the crystal. Rigpa and recognizing everything is its display, its rays. Are you with me? Yet Rigpa remains unmoved. Thus the saying, we've heard it early in the week, in Rigpa nothing arises, nothing happens. Unmoved. Not trying not to do anything. That's different. That's just one more ego strategy, which has its karmic repercussions and implications. Like, why get out of bed in the morning? I'm just going to get in at night. Depression. So the image of the crystal, and that's the non-doing doing, as I think Mel called it the first day, the Wu Wei, the Jadrell, the beyond worldly action, the beyond dualistic ego-centered activities, the pure flow, the Tao flow, ecstatic, not static, of the great perfection. So view meditation, now we're up to the action, like the ocean waves, as needed, according to conditions, responsive, not reactive. Or like reflections in a mirror, or like the colors refracted, displayed by a crystal, yet the crystal remains unmoved or unchanged. I ask you, what color is the crystal, friends? The crystal remains unchanged, even though it looks green to me. That's called recognition. Seeing through the nature of mind and its projections, or feelings, the inner weather and moods, which are still external to our luminous crystal-like, if you want it, Buddha nature, or Buddha mind, Rikpa. So, beyond action and inaction, the supreme 
crystal-like dharma is accomplished. The crystal doesn't do anything, but it has a lot more potential than mere glass. So the absolute bodhicitta remains unmoved, resting at the origin of all things, as it were, and responsive, empty, open, yet luminous, radiant, responsive, compassionate, action, uh, 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 dynamic, even if it's just dynamic, relaxed presence, not doing, just being dynamic, not dozing, not trying to do as little as possible, quietest, not, not, not passive, not doormat, not complacent, caring, connected, because not separate, seeing through the illusion of separateness, everything as our display, like it says in the Hindu Scriptures, the Upanishads, wherever I go, I meet myself. So it's a self with a capital S. This is not ego. Treat others as you would be treated. That's what it's saying. No separation. All one. So from view, meditation, and action, now we're on the action, the conduct of the bodhisattvas. It plays out as the 10 paramita virtues of the bodhisattvas, the transformative acts of the bodhisattvas. Not just doing nothing, or resting on our enlightened laurels, sitting in our cave. Um, I'm smiling because comes up the story of Kala Rinpoche, who was one of the great cave yogis of Tibet, of the old generation in old Tibet before China conquered it. And lamas like him and the Dalai Lama and the 16th Karmapa, etc., had to escape in 1959. Kalim famously spent about 22 years in a cave above the snow line, like Milarepa, after his three-year retreat under his guru, Jamgun Kantrawal, in Parpung Monastery. And he stayed in the famous cave of Sadra Rinchik Puk, the name of the Sadra Translation Committee, named after Kalim cave where he got enlightened, like Milarepa. And Rinpoche stayed there so long and he got such a reputation, and, and people like his nephew, who I knew, who's the father of his tuku now, going fast. Don't worry if you don't know these words. Lama Jelsa said, I took food to him a few times every few months. No human being could live like that in that cave above the snow line in the Himalayas without a door and the winter wind and snow coming in. Except for a, a yogi like Milarepa with his tumo and his... his uh, Fortitude, his efforts, his transcendence, really. Finally, Taisitu Rinpoche, who was the head of the Kagyu at that time because the 16th Karmapa was a boy. Taisitu was like the Uba guru. He wrote to Kala Rinpoche, he said, come and teach at our three-year retreat center so you could train the next generations. And Kala Rinpoche didn't answer. So they sent another message from the great master. And Kalimche sent back and said, uh, I vowed to stay in retreat for the benefit of all beings for the rest of this life. And Taisitu, a, a great master, you can see his picture sitting next to the little Karmapa in the 1930s, no, 40s or 50s. Tai this was not the smiling generation, smile for the camera people. They didn't have cameras in Tibet. Somehow there was a camera picture. And Karmapa. Uh. <laughs> the little lion. Uh. <laughs> Don't want to get in trouble with my guru, my compassionate guru. 
Tyson, you wrote back. I'm parsing, translating. You come out of that goddamn cave or you're not my disciple anymore and come and teach those yard apes at the three-year retreat. They need you. So Kalarimche had to come out and end his retreat and give up his great enlightenment, as it were. We don't know what. Anyway, I guess he wasn't meant to be the permanent graduate student and he had to come back and teach. After a mere 22 years in the caves, after three or four years retreats, after being trained his whole life by his father, Lama. So this is the action of the bodhisattvas, responsive as needed, letting go, giving up your own self, uh, will or plans, and responsive to what's needed, to the higher vision. So he became a great bodhisattva and taught and had many disciples, and he was the Lama of Lamas. He was the Dalai Lama's six yogas teacher, tumo teacher and all. And I'm just to complete this story, since, you know, you know, I'm not a big dealer of miracle stories, but just to say, tell it as they tell it, because these things are being lost to our modern, postmodern, secular, scientific age. The Dalai Lama himself said, like this Kala Rinpoche, when he did the six yogas, he, I, he flew, I saw him. And I don't think he was going like this, flying over the Himalayas, but I think he was like sitting in, you know, he was like lighter than air. The Dalai Lama said he flew. If you know the Dalai Lama, if you've heard the Dalai Lama, if you've read anything by him, this is not a person who exaggerates. It's a modern, scientific, diplomatic, Nobel Peace Prize winning, human rights activist, a visionary, but not airy-fairy storyteller a science-minded person who loves neuroscience, etc. So that's what he had to say about this Kala Rinpoche and his attainments. And that would be the least of his attainments, that he could fly. And his great love, its selfless wisdom and everything. An endless energy of giving. So thus naturally flows the ten paramitas of the bodhisattva, the action. Remember, we've talked about view and meditation. Now we're going back to the world. We're talking about action in the world. I'm not going to talk here about having a meditation practice every morning or going to a group once a week. These things are very important and helpful. And love and kindness and mindfulness in every day and bringing your practice into every part of life, of course. Or coming to retreats sometimes, or going on a spiritual, spiritual pilgrimage, or taking a sabbatical or retreat for a year or six months. Of course, could be. But the bodhisattva actions, the view meditation action, the ten paramitas, transcendental virtues, panacean practices, paramitas in Sanskrit. First, generosity, self-giving, non-attachment. Second, morality, ethics, self-discipline, compassion, like it's compassionate to be ethical and virtuous and tell the truth and nonviolent, etc. Third, shanti, harmony, peace, acceptance. So these things naturally come forth when we see no difference in self and others and when we are Buddha. Buddha without need. We're just accepting the needs and wearing them lightly. If you're thirsty, drink. If you're hungry, eat. That's not being needy. That's like being alive, living Buddha, not dead Buddha statue. Fourth, effort, enthusiastic, joyous effort of the bodhisattvas, dynamic, heroism. Fifth, concentration, focus, mindfulness. Sixth, transcendental wisdom, prajna. 
Seven skillful means, methods. Six, the Bodhisattva knows what needs to be done with the wisdom eye. Sees how things work, cause and effect. Sees through the illusion of separateness. Is clear and objective. Sees things as they are, not as we want them to be. Sees things as they are, not as they ain't. That's sixth, wisdom. Discriminating awareness, discernment, transcendental gnosis, prajna. Thus, seven, they can have skillful means and methods, not just messing around with a blunt instrument trying to solve problems with a sledgehammer approach or my way or the highway approach. Only one tool for all, which makes the Bodhisattva more like a tool, and I don't mean in a good way. Eighth, tub, tub power, as, uh, um, um, cities, like powers, like not just to fly, but like to heal, to help, to to connect, charisma, like to draw people towards the goal and so forth, leadership, etc. the enlightened quality, leadership qualities. Eighth, powers. Nine, aspiration, intention, resolve, motivation. Everything depends on our resolve and motivation. And tenth, presence or authenticity, jnana, hard to describe. For primordial awareness or jnana authenticity, presence. So this is the conduct of the bodhisattvas. Notice this is not, we're talking about not lying, not killing, not stealing the five basic moral precepts. This is not meditate, pray, chant. This is the natural outflow, the natural responsiveness of the bodhisattvas. View, meditation, and not ego, reactive activity. Not just knee-jerk reaction according to habitual patterns making you a jerk kind of activity, a proactive boot activity as needed and wanted as possible. This is the conduct or the action of the bodhisattvas. So in the ultimate remaining unmoved like the crystal, but if there's wind, if there's karmic winds, if there's waves, if there's rays, if there's energy, if there's requests, if there's needs, those are like the light rays in this image, then naturally all the six realms are filled with one's Buddha activity, even the lower realms. The bodhisattvas dive into them like the famous Indian geese that dive into the lakes and go all the way down to into the muck to get the lotuses and so forth. Not afraid to even dive into the shit and just swim with your mouth open and swallow it all so the other poor people drowning in it can be free, swallowing the whole yellow river of shit. It's a Zen reference. So all can be free, not being afraid. Stay away from the impurities. Don't meditate with other people and other religions in their houses of worship. Yes, some Buddhist teachers say that. This is the Hinayana, the great narrow path, not the great universal path of Mahayana, not to mention the non-dual path of Vajrayana. So if we went further in this, let's talk about enhancement. Bokden, view, meditation, action, results, stepping up, enhancement, taking it to the next level, Bokden. Stepping up, stepping out freely, like Naropa did when he, he was the great abbot of Nalanda Monastery, the most famous university and monastery in Buddhist India 2,000 years ago or whatever it was, I don't know, 1,300 years ago. The great pundit, learned abbot, professor, yogi, master, Naropa, monk, lifelong monk in Kempo, proud with status, of the monastery, 
like Professor Emeritus, Nobel Prize winner professor. He had a dream, and in his dream, Padre Yogini came and told him that his, the guru who had enlightened him is the crazy wild-eyed yogi under the bridge in Calcutta named Talopa, who's living on the offal of fish. That's not sushi, friends. That means the stuff the fishermen throw away. The offal. It was awful. No wonder why his eyes were bloodshot from living under a bridge and eating that crap. And Naropa left the monastery and, and was walking along looking for his way. And he, 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 uh, he met a leper, a hag, a crone uh, along, along the road. And he laid down with her and he bro gave, broke all his monk vows and concepts. And he consorted with the, the disgusting leperous, ancient, horrid crone. She probably had one eye and, and one boob and, and, you know, I don't know what, whatever was weird and, and beyond concepts. And he had a great awakening because she was Vajrayogini and she said, he's under the bridge in Calcutta, go there. And he went there and, and Talopa beat the shit out of him through 10, 12 years and then he became enlightened. We don't do that here, but we probably should. <laughs> you can read about it in the life of Naropa, translated by the Nalanda Translation Committee, I believe, or, or Herbert Gunther. The 12 great tri years and trials and tribulations of Naropa. And then when Marpa came from Tibet, Naropa kicked him in the face with his dirty sandal after some while. And, and Marpa woke. I don't know, I'm probably getting this all wrong. And then Marpa taught Milarepa. Tibet's greatest yogi, and then Milarepa taught us through Kala Rinpoche and others today. So this is not a candy-coated lollipop of dharma that you get at the doctor's office. If we want enlightenment, which is like realizing God, this is not just a weekend project. It's an infinite journey and involving all beings, and certainly not just oneself, one ego. It has universal moment and import. So stepping up to that level and considering what's more important, put yourself on one side of the line and all the many beings on the other side and just think about it when you make your decisions. What's more important? The Dalai Lama had the temerity to say to Bill Clinton when Bill was president, the most powerful man in the world, theoretically, the Dalai Lama said, I don't know that he did this, but I'm going to make the point. Dalai Lama doesn't like whatever that is. He said, every decision you make should be made through compassion. Who the hell does the Dalai Lama think he is to tell our president like that? What he should do. And Bill Clinton loved it, and it was, you know, remembered by many. Well, that's, that's new and different. I thought it's all about real politic, Kissinger said, self-interest, not compassion. Well, we're talking about the bigger self-interest, aren't we? The bigger self, the universal self. Look at the environmental situation we're in now from not thinking globally and acting locally. So enhancement, stepping up, a bigger picture, whatever we call it. Take it to the next level, taking it off our meditation cushions. You know, Jesus said, pick up your sick bed and walk. You're cured. That's what I say to you. Pick up your meditation mat and yoga mat and, and walk in life. And don't carry it around with you, please, like, a, like a, an idiot. Or sit on your desk cross-legged in the morning to show everybody how spiritual you are. 
I'm talking to you. I know. I've seen you. Do the, <laughs> sitting there in the shops these days, cross-legged, going, um. <laughs> Let's remember the Dzogchen slogan, many quickies, rather than waiting for time for those few longies. So every moment while we're standing on the corner waiting to cross the street or at the red light or you know, the elevator or whatever, wherever we are, in, in the plane or in the airline terminal waiting. <sighs> Staying, not waiting. Staying, but resting into original things. And if we're distracted, if we're not cutting through to ourselves, we can pet. We can wake up, take a breath, breathe out, sky gaze, one minute, moment of mindfulness, five seconds. Doing that throughout the day will perforate the solidity of a claustrophobic day. With the sharp rigpa, purba, magic dagger of awareness, perforates the solidity of a claustrophobic day, but we have to use it. Pop, pop, pop. If it's closing in, otherwise just resting in awareness. How long does that take? That's not, that take a half an hour. You have to cross your legs and close your eyes for that. That's Bogden. I believe it was St. Paul, might have been Peter, doesn't matter, who said, make every breath a prayer. That's what we're talking about. Every breath is it. Like in the meditation instruction, first breath, best breath, first breath, birth breath. First breath only, this breath only breath, this moment only moment. And every breath is a a wordless, non-dual prayer, not praying for something. It's a meditation. That's Bokden, enhancement, total integration with every moment of daily life. Stepping up, stepping out, breaking concepts, walking through walls, letting go of our mind-forged manacles, even the golden handcuffs of our own rules and protocols and ideas of sacred and mundane. Letting go of that. What is not sacred on the continent? of jewels where there's no ordinary dirt or rock in Rigpa and recognize everything as it's dance and display. All the rainbow displays, the floaters, the floats going by on the Easter parade from the crystal-like, unmoved Dharmakaya innate awareness. So this is ties up the scheme of view, meditation, and action of the great perfection with the great, uninhibited, liberating Buddha activity not reactive, self-oriented, narcissistic, or selfish karmic activity. Any questions, please? The view, meditation, action, and result, the ground path and fruit of the the luminous great perfection. How sweet it is, the luminous grape confection. I love it. Linda gets it. No questions left from the week. Very good. Everything's clear. Very good. No questions. Excellent.
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I know you don't really teach with autobiography, but I was wondering if you can comment a little bit. Having had the good fortune to meet one of the great Indian Avadhud village saints, what drew you to the Tibetans, or what did you feel when you first started meeting the Lamas? Were they, was it the same experience you'd had with your guru? Was it a different experience? Yes, it was the same, different. You know, anyway, I was 20 years old, so it wasn't that rational. I didn't have a checklist of the pluses and minuses columns, you know. I had a pack, I had a canteen, you know, I had like 100 bucks, and I was wandering around in India for a year, you know what I'm saying? I had 150 bucks in traveler's checks. I was golden. But I didn't know Hinduism from Buddhism, Shmudism. But, um, you know, I met Maharaji Nimkrali by my guru, and he opened my heart, and there were people there, good friends, and they, you know, helped me understand what was going on, which I never understood anyway. And then I met Kala Rinpoche, Karmapa, Chacho Rinpoche, who died a couple of days ago. He was the first great Lama I ever met. It was like 1971, I was 20 years old, wandering around, you know. I didn't decide... I was looking for something. I was a truth seeker. I went to Gwenka's 10-day intensive, silent, puritanical, no food after lunch, you know, 12-hour day meditation course, one-hour sittings all day without movement allowed. You know, did, went on pilgrimage to the Amrath Cave over the snowy passes, 13,000 feet for eight days, you know, with Mira Bush and Krishna Bush. And, um, you know, to Shiva's cave and where the lingam grows in the full moon in August and, you know, Hari Bam, Shankar and all that. And um, eventually Maharaj was looking, studying with, learning, meeting the saints and sages all over India in those years. And then when Maharaj died in 73, I went to Kala Rinpoche's monastery in Darjeeling and stayed there with Karmapa and Kala Rinpoche and a few other people. Uh, the next few years on and off, depending on visas and stuff. So it just kind of took me over. I didn't really decide. Of course, Tibetan Buddhism has a lot more devotion and chanting and heart and, and stuff like that than like Gawank is very stripped down and pure, you know, in Vipassana mindfulness tradition. So that was a, more like Maharaji and Bhakti and devotion. And I went to Japan, I ran out of money, so I went to Japan for a year, borrowed money, went to Japan, taught English, college, corporate for a year, studied Zen and haiku. You know, Zen, I like Zen, sad Zen sessions every week, uh, five days every month, sit facing a wall, black wall, nothing to do, no chanting, no nothing, no hats, no socks in the winter, freezing, no nothing, you know, it was really something almost. But it was too black and white photography for me. I went back to t Tibetan Buddhism and bhakti, you see? So it's kind of the same, but it has its different flavors. So that's my path, kind of a little juicy. Juicy, guru, devotion, not everybody's so much into that. So that's the similarity, but then quite different. Maharaji never really gave us teachings or studied things. I mean, um, there were different chantings and scriptures, but... He was a wandering holy man and very old and not a scholar, professor, or temple builder, ashram builder. Kalimpur is part, you know, the 
teacher of the Karmapa and the Tukus and the Dalai Lama. And he had just came out of Tibet and they were trying to preserve their knowledge and falling apart rice paper, Tibetan texts and rituals and study, you know, and like make something continue, make study and practice possible. So I got into that more. That was different than just having darshan with the saint in Karoli Baba who didn't speak English. We had a translator, but there weren't any Dharma teachings or meditations or real organization. It was the early 70s also. It was a long time ago. There was no internet to look anything up in. If you found books, you'd have to go to Delhi to find an English language dictionary or you know a book to read about it. You could only carry so many books with you on your pack in India. You didn't have an iPad where you accessed everything or a Kindle. It was great. You were also off the grid. So I hope that's helpful. Ruth. Um, there are the five senses, and then there's consciousness of each of those senses. Can you talk about the consciousness of the senses? There are six senses, six senses, and mind is the sixth. Okay. So there's auditory consciousness, and, you know, there's ear, to make it simple for me, ear consciousness, eyes consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, and body consciousness, like sensation. And then there's the mental consciousness. So each of those has an object. The ears, is, object is sound, hearing, sound, seeing, forms. Right? Nose, smells, taste, whatever. No, tongue consciousness, tastes, body, sensations, and mind, thoughts, and so on, feelings, perception. So one consciousness and six senses or portals. That's Buddhist psychology. So if your hearing, for example, isn't working that well, is the hearing consciousness still activated theoretically consciousness is full and complete but you know it's just like one of the windows or doors this is just an image because it's not really clear if things going in or out or both but one of the port the doors or windows might be like a little boarded up or shuttered or half closed or but the consciousness is still possible as we i think know from research like blind people can see light or shadow just like the optic nerve isn't processing the forms or something right so the so there would still be some kind of vibration even if you can't quite hear the sound would you there could be but vibration is still external to consciousness because that depends on something vibrating like whatever's right. in your ear or you know the stirrup and the, you know the stamen and the pistol or whatever's in there you know the stirrup bone and the eardrum, what, something has to vibrate. But the potential to hear what you said, but the consciousness could still hear the vibration if there's something to vibrate and so on. Thank you. So I know you have hearing issues, but I don't know what you're really after here. It's helpful. So I exhort you to look into the, the looker, you know, the experiencer, not whether it's hearing or seeing, but who, what is experiencing these things. That's closer to tracing the source of the radiance as it says in the Zen classic. 
tracing the source of all this radiance. You remember what we talked about today, the crystal and its display, or the silver screen movie of emptiness, the silver screen of emptiness, and tracing the source of all the radiance to the projector and the process, thus the, the whole process, subject, object, and interaction. And then you can rest in the origin of all things or whatever we're trying to do here, just to, you know, complete my, my thought. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Not worry about whether you can hear or not or whether you can see or not or whether your eyes are open or closed or not. Okay, I hope that's helpful. Yes, thank you. Anybody we haven't heard from? This is your last chance. Don't save it for the closing circle tomorrow. It's not the time for me to preside and be the answer man. Mel? Good old reliable no, no, Mel. Is, old but no, no, this is a burning question. Okay. I mean, this Wait is a minute. really let me, let me get ready. Get ready, yeah. Barry sitting behind you is fanning you. I hope you feel <laughs> the cool. Why do Buddhists love numbered lists so much? Everybody knows, but probably because Buddha, I mean, because I've said so. Buddha was uh, probably from the accountant caste. <laughs> no, a more serious answer might be because it was oral. It's not just Buddhists that love numbered lists. Why do all old religions have numbered lists, or all or old cultures, oral traditions have numbered lists, or rhyming prayers, or meted verse? Because it was the only way to remember stuff and encode it and pass it down when there was no copy machines and, you know, or writing, book prints, presses, no oral tradition. Thank you. I feel much better now. That's, that's why. So it could be encoded and written down and remembered. But more interestingly to me was um, even just, la I mean, I'm still studying these things, loving these things too as a seeker and all, just like you. And so last week I was in Sivananda Ashram in the Bahamas teaching meditation, and there was a rabbi there. It was an interfaith holiday um, symposium, they call it, like a workshop. And the rabbi told the story of, um, this relates to uh, numbers and codes. You may have heard of the Ten Commandments, not, not Buddhists. The rabbi told the story of how uh, in his Hasidic tradition it's passed down the story from the old rabbis um, that Moses, I didn't get to ask him really, I, I would love to have like, you know, uh, cross-examined the rabbi about this story, but I didn't bother. The rabbi told that Moses had a dream in which God said, Now, Moses, yeah, Moses had a dream which God said, Moses, go over there to the base of the mountain and see what your friends are doing with that big stone with a list on it. So Moses went, and they all said, oh, Moshe, 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 St. Moshe, you know, oh, here, you know, look, this wonderful Ten Commandments that you gave us from God on high from your 40 days on the mountain. Remember, this is in Moses' dream. He's supposed to be coming back to God, so it's a little bit time disoriented, but before and after, because God is in the timeless, like dreams. Moses, 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 and Moses looked at it, 
And he, he didn't want to say anything. He just went like, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. Let me interpret. Like, what the hell is that? <laughs> or, hmm, that's an interesting translation. He looked at the Ten Commandments, which is what we have, the Ten Commandments, which everybody knows exactly what God said. And, you know, I don't know, God chiseled, because God is of the um, stonemason cast, chiseled onto the stone that Moses, that, that was handy on the mount there, and Moses brought back. So Moses came back in the dream uh, and, and, and reported to God. Oh, my God. I, I, they have these, t- these Ten Commandments that they say that I got from you, from God. And God said, what I gave you can never be written down. They have like their version of it. He didn't say I did or didn't or you did or didn't. They have their version of it. What I gave you cannot never be written down or put in words or something. So that's why we have all these lists of things so we can remember them and pass them on. And they're all, you know, a version. I'm sure what. What God gives each of us it cannot be enumerated or even spelled out so easy, although every poem, every art, and every life is an attempt to do so. I believe. I feel. Mine is. I, I feel everyone. life is. Thank you. Questions? Linda, do I see your hand twitching, or are you just feeling, like, excited? No, I don't get excited anymore, Lama. <laughs> Why not? Well, I, I have to be dignified. You are dignified. You are dignified, Dakini, and <laughs> we love you. you. Oh, thank you. I love you, all you guys, so, and the little guys, too. Don't forget the little people. So um, what I wanted to say was about... Um, I've, this retreat has been wonderful for me because I've really been able to be heart-centered and, you know, it's like cut your head off. And you realize that all the skandhas all come right through here. Please they talk all, in English so everybody all, can participate. All of the sensations, now everything comes through your heart. And I, that's what I played with all week, listening, listening, listening. And the closer I was to my center, which is pretty much all the time now, the frequencies change. Everything changes. You can hear it. I mean, you can follow it if you want to. It's fun, but it's all there. You don't have to hear it. I mean, it just comes right in through your heart. I think all of them come through your heart first. So the point is, you know, your head is a just a, you're using your head as a filter, and that's bad. Your head is not a good filter, right? Gets clogged up and has opinions. That wasn't what I was going to say, but thank you anyway. Since you asked the question, I'll, I'll play the role of answer man. I heard that the head is the office, the home is the heart. Oh, yes, some wise master yes. who, who and, I saw. And another wise person said that the heart is an organ of perception. I don't think he was just talking about the heart, vent, yes, the four ventricles. Yes, and the heart strings you can sing with. You don't have to say a thing. And there's Thank a little you. wishbone in your heart that you don't know about, but it's a rainbow. May we all together achieve the great rainbow body of freedom and delight and transreal essence all in one mandala. Fulfill the promise of this wonderful dharma, not just Buddhism, this wonderful spirit of awakening, of being, of love and truth and whatever words we put on it in our weak translations.
this to be a better world now and later for all. Thank you.